Hello and welcome to Sharp HR Career Corner with Karen Sharp Price. This podcast will inform and inspire you in your quest to find the right career path. If you're just starting out, looking to make a change in your field or transitioning into a new career, then this podcast is for you. We'll be sharing tips and providing resources on topics such as writing resumes, interviewing, using LinkedIn, and networking. We will take a look at different careers, companies, and opportunities. You will hear success stories from professionals in all career paths, and so much more. You will leave this podcast with three key takeaways that you can easily put into practice. Enjoy! Welcome to Sharp HR Career Corner. I'm Karen Sharp-Price. Today, we're going to talk to Eric Hill about his career story. Eric and I met through Damon College. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Karen. Thank you. How are you? Thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us and talking about your career journey. I'd like us to try to begin with what drew you to social studies and history in college? It actually, I would say, started in high school. I, of all the courses that you have to take in high school, the ones that really spoke to me the most really were my social studies courses. They weren't only the ones that I tended to do the best in, but they were the ones I found the most interesting, the ones that I found I had a passion outside of school about. I would be watching the, the History Channel at home or sometimes the Discovery Channel if it had um, you know, a sociology or an anthropology aspect to it. Not all the time, don't get me wrong. Of course, yeah. I watched other things, <laughs> um, but... You know, it, it wasn't uncommon to just kind of sit there and go, oh, let, I, let's look at this modern Marvel show or something like that that was on the History Channel. In high school, I was I was a shop kid mostly. Okay. I did a lot of architecture classes and working with CAD and things. And by the time I got to my senior year, I sort of realized, man, I, I don't know that I want to sit down and draw all day at that time. And, and I had no idea where CAD was going, which is computer aid, animated drafting. And I thought, well, what's my, what's my next love? And history sort of spoke to me. And I was also very lucky to have some very passionate and influential teachers that kind of filled certain role model and, and you know, looking up to type roles that perhaps didn't exist in my personal life. And so it was seemed like a no-brainer. I should go to school to teach, and I should teach social studies. <laughs> so where did you end up? Where did, where did you go? Uh, I did my undergraduate at Kutztown University of Pennsylvania, okay. which is, um, if people are, if anybody's familiar, it's, it's southeastern Pennsylvania, not far from sort of the triangle of Philadelphia, Reading, and Allentown. Uh, Kutztown locally with, in the Buffalo area is probably best known for being the alma mater of Andre Reed. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was how I first heard of it. Uh-huh. And my my father lived down there. And so I uh, I had gone on a college visit, just thought, oh, what the heck, I'll, I'll take a look. Most likely I'll be going locally to Buff State or UB, something somewhere like that. And as I looked at the program and realized that it actually was originally in its inception was Kutztown State Teachers College, sort of heard the history and that's what they really hung their hat on i applied and i got in and i said that's where i'm going i'm leaving western new york and i'm gonna head to pennsylvania so after you graduated from there were you still on the same track of planning on teaching yes so right from the get-go i obviously had to do my undergraduate general studies things of that nature 
but even as a freshman, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I was part of a cohort. So I was enrolled in some education classes first semester of my freshman year. Oh. And that, that was my track the whole way. My student teaching senior year was, you know, a great experience. And then I uh, had some, some job fair opportunities. I actually came back to Buffalo the summer that I graduated, which was uh, May of 2003. And my older sister is also a teacher. She teaches special ed. And she had a job at Hopevale Union Free School District, which uh, if you're familiar, it's yeah. in, it was in the Hamburg area. And it was a school for some very troubled students, students mm. that were court ordered to be there. Wow. So... My first, my job getting paid for a teaching experience was actually teaching biology and algebra as a long-term summer substitute, uh, not in my degree at all, Yeah. <laughs> at, at Hopevale while I, while I was interviewing and eventually got offered a position as a full-time history teacher at uh, Spotsylvania High School, Virginia. Wow. So, so by August of 2003, shortly after graduation, I... I moved to Virginia and started my first full-time teaching job. So when you were looking for a teaching job, were you, so you were looking really anywhere and you would have moved anywhere? Yeah, I was very open to that. One of the things that Kutztown was very good about letting us know that to be a teacher, and I believe it's something like 44 or maybe 45 of the 50 states, you have to take a series of exams called the praxis exams. And that gives you reciprocity depending on your scores, but that gives you reciprocity in almost every single state in the United States. Not um. New York State, but um, <laughs> New York has its own exams, but, but 45 of the 50 <laughs> do accept it. And so Pennsylvania being one of them, it was actually a requirement to graduate as an ed major that you had to pass the Praxis exams at that time oh, okay. at Kutztown. It wasn't just the course load. It was also taking and, and passing those. They were also very good about kind of letting us, giving us some exposure to the job market and sort of looking at the various regions of the United States and and where teachers were needed and where mm. we had some, you know, where we could get paid pretty well, even right out of school. That's but at the nice. same time, where it was needed, New, you know, New York State's been losing population for a couple of decades as people move away, of course, they take their children. It's not as much of a need for teachers in all disciplines, math and science. Right. Sure. Unfortunately, social studies teachers were, were kind of a dime a dozen. So if I wanted to teach, I had to be open to moving to, to going somewhere else and at least building up my resume and then perhaps later on down the line coming back. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to jump ahead a little bit, but and we'll go back to to your teaching in high school. But at what point did you then decide to go from teaching history or social studies to instructional um, systems design? Where did that come into play? So I guess uh, fast forward to 2016, I believe it was. Around 2016, I had been a, the social studies department chair at the school I was working at in Charlotte, North Carolina for eight years. I had actually even also been an assistant principal at one point in time and went back to the classroom because, and this is no, I mean, no offense to people that are administrators, <laughs> but it takes a special kind of person. And, and I realized after one year of doing it, that person is not me. I, uh, I belong in the classroom. I belong educating. That's, that's where I'm happy. That's where I can do my best work. So anyways, 
at the same time, I also wanted to give myself some, I'll call it career flexibility. There always has been a desire to, or had been a desire to move back to Western New York. And I had been gone. I left in 1999 for college and I was gone that entire time. Mm. Um, my parents, like a lot of expats coming back to Western New York, parents are getting a little older, wanted to come home, wanted to be around family. And so knowing that unfortunately social studies teachers are a dime a dozen and the, the teacher job market here between the exams I would have to go through, not that that was an issue, but there are a lot of hurdles if you're not already in the system. Oh, okay. Yep. A lot of hurdles. So I wanted to be able to be flexible, still use the skills that I'd you know, gained and refined in my own career, but I also needed some practical experience. So I started looking at what can teachers do outside of teaching? I looked in, you know, whether it was just blogs, I went to um, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh-huh. to see, to sort of match things up. What's the, what's it look like on the horizon for yeah. some of these careers? And instructional systems design was one of those careers that I thought, all right. So I went back to school for a, a second master's degree at wow. UNC Charlotte for specifically instructional systems design. Mm-hmm. And I had a very good relationship with my principal at that time. So I started teaching part-time and I became the instructional coordinator for the school. And so in, in 2016, I think it was halfway through the year, we actually initiated a blended learning program that was school-wide at the school I was working at. So as I was working on my master's, that was part of my job was to initiate this. So we, we actually had every teacher using an LMS in this case, it was Schoology, not Blackboard, but using a learning management system in some shape or form in their class. And it was a two-year phase-in program. So by the time I left, we had 100% of the staff had met all our milestones. They were actively using it with their courses, many of them in a flipped classroom type strategy, Uh uh, which a lot of that came from partly my experience and then partly my studies when I went back for instructional design. Yeah, it was like right when you were doing it. So can you to explain, because honestly, until I was teaching at Damon and working then with you to help me figure out my classes, I really did not know that that even existed out there. So can you explain to those <laughs> sure. that are listening, what exactly is structural systems design and technology? Sure. Uh, I'll give you the textbook definition first, and then I'll sort of my simplified version. Okay. Uh, I, I typed it up because I didn't want to okay, forget <laughs> the textbook definition. The textbook definition is the systematic process for the assessment and development of training solutions designed specifically for the purpose of formal training delivery. The way I look at it is this. It's a systematic and purposeful way of designing and developing any learning program, whether it be for corporate or school or whatever in between, in which every aspect of the curriculum that you're putting together is selected and we'll say students are engaging with it very intentionally. It's all interconnected. Uh, So there's a lot of project management that goes into it, sort of keeping that idea in mind using a model I'm very familiar with and very partial to is called backwards design. And The technology piece really comes in when we think about online courses, uh, hybrid courses or blended courses, but it it really doesn't need to be. The the truth is, even instructional systems design, if you just drop the technology part, 
a lot of a lot of corporate trainers went through similar training where it's they might even train in only in face to face prior to covid but everything has a purpose everything has a meaning every asset used even no matter how minuscule or small comes into play even one of the parts you're thinking about ergonomics when you're filling up a room with people how, you know will they have enough room to right will lefties be able to use these seats versus people that are right-handed so it, it, there's a lot of just systematic thinking organization that goes into it now bring the technology piece and we think in an online program for example all right now how do we how do those pieces enhance the program or support whichever program you're building okay so i mean you're really looking at it from from really truly both sides yes i i like to think that um that's where I am lucky is I've, I've been on the teacher side. I've been on the instructor side as an yeah. instructional coordinator at a school. I trained teachers, obviously working at Damon. I'm working with faculty, both collaboratively, as well as, you know, the workshops that we put on, for example, helping with that training. So I, I do like to, <laughs> this is maybe where my history teacher background comes into play. I always taught my history classes from a perspective where I asked my students to look at every perspective of a situation. So if we're talking politics, don't oh. only look at it from the Republican side. Don't only look at it from the Democrat side. If you think you're a Democrat, okay, fine. Try to think of it from the Republican side because it helps you with your argument if you know what your opposition is thinking like. Yep. And and then when it comes to training, I always try to put myself in the shoes of faculty. What kind of obstacles might they be facing? unfamiliarity with technology, for example. Okay, so I really need to make sure I'm hitting the finer points. But when I'm also working to design courses, I'm an advocate for the student in that sense. I try to think, if I'm a student, am I going to be able to easily find these things? As a student, I want to concentrate on the content. I don't want to have to perform a scavenger hunt just to find the assignment I'm supposed right. to turn in. So is so, that where that one-click... Uh, comes into the play. That's part of it. That yeah. is part of it. Yep. <laughs> we we do try to keep the number of clicks as um as small as possible. <laughs> well, you know, from where I stand as an adjunct and having to deal going through the pandemic, pretty much all my stuff was already online. So when I would go into Damon and teach it, it was the same process that I was using when I had to go, you know, all full remote. But I have to say with nephews that are in other schools in the area, college-wise, Damon really stood out. Like the way in which your whole department helped all of the professors, from my perspective, was incredible. You know, we had to move very quickly and when that mm -hmm. happened. Like, you know, that was like a fire drill. <laughs> and it was, and we just, we had to go with it. And you one, you made it very easy because of all the things that you had already set up along the way that probably we didn't <laughs> really appreciate until <laughs> we really needed it. But you you made it very easy, and you you make all these videos that we can watch and and go over and over. And if we're stuck on something, the availability of your department for anybody to be having to meet with somebody at any given time because we're having a trouble. I can't speak more highly of the way Damon has handled the whole pandemic from from technology to everything else. So um, so I well, thank, thank you, you for that because you really you you have really helped. I mean you don't you don't know until you're in it. 
right. what to expect, but you already had things in place, which made things a lot smoother when it happened. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. We're, I don't know if we're a, a unique office as far as instructional design in colleges and universities is concerned, but, um, but we might be. All, all three of us. All three of us have a background as teachers at some point in our careers and as educators, you know, in, in some point in our careers. And so I, I do think that that helps us have an empathy for faculty that perhaps other instructional designers or design departments, I don't, I don't want to say they'd lack, but maybe they can't quite empathize as much. Right. No, and, I and think I, that had to have helped. Even in your career, having already been on the other side, I would think that that has to have some kind of positive impact on what you do. I like to think so. And even coming back to just maybe pre-COVID or since COVID course design, Mm -hmm. with the program I helped institute in Charlotte, knowing some of the hiccups we dealt with before a pandemic, where we were trying to get our faculty using something like Blackboard on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Peter and I had a lot of conversations, and I think we were able to start instituting some things even on the front end that, as you said, we didn't necessarily wait until the pandemic, but at least when it hit, we had some resources ready to go and to share out. Yeah, I mean, really, from from where I'm standing, you didn't seem like you hiccuped at all. You, it seemed very smooth. You had things in place. You just threw it out there and said, you know, we do have these things here. <laughs> so you can, you know, like they were already there. It didn't, it didn't feel like you guys were scrambling at all. You, you seemed very put together and processes and procedures and you were always, always available to help any of us at any time. So from my perspective, you, you guys did an amazing job. Thank you. Just we wanna, appreciate that. Just want to get that out there. So tell me, what do you love most right now about Damon and about your job? I would say something I wasn't used to as a teacher, and and this may surprise some people, uh, first would be the autonomy that I have and the trust that I have. As As a high school teacher, a lot of things are dictated to you by a lot of different, from a, from a lot of different ways. Um, some are dictated by the state, and, and it's just, this is what you have to do. You don't have any say at all in the final exam. You don't even get to see it ahead of time. It's just going to happen. Here it is. Uh, so a lot of things are dictated to you. You know, there are certain things that are, di- your schedule is dictated to you. I, you know, I taught five of six periods a day and I was told about two weeks before class start, this is when your course starts. You don't get to choose when you teach. And depending on your department, luckily, I, I like to think when I ran a department, we had our end of the year department meeting, we chose our, what we would teach the next school year. You know, we, we really sort of hashed that out as a department. Mm-hmm. And as a leader, I always I always took on the, all right, you know, if nobody else wants it, I'll teach it. I, I, this is my preference. I hope you guys are okay with that. But I usually defer to everyone else to select first and sort of took on the, the courses that some people either didn't want to teach oh. or didn't feel comfortable teaching. I thought that that was the way to do it, to lead by example. So many things are dictated to you at Damon I have the autonomy within, you know, the larger IT department, but specifically the Office of Instructional Design to come up with ideas on what trainings we want to present to the Damon faculty. Uh, and a lot of it's based on data that we do collect, whether it be, you know, in conversations or know or knowing where needs are like the pandemic created. 
Yeah. So I, I have that autonomy. I get to control my schedule. If I don't clock in until 10 o'clock, that's fine, you know, but get the hours in. And, and that's an occasional, that's not an everyday thing. That's a, you know, if it happens, you have to go get an oil change. Sure. Go get your oil changed that day, but then take care of it. And that's, I do really love that. And then what I've really found is I've become a super nerd for organization, for like course organization, getting uh-huh. these things together, the, the project management aspect of my job with course development. I, I've just become, <laughs> maybe maybe some would say OCD, but I'm like, but I like it. Like I don't feel, <laughs> I don't feel driven crazy by it. And I do find that in the systems we've created and the processes that we have, there's there's a flexibility. So there's, it's flexible, systematic course development. When you're systematic, you think it has to be done that way. No, there's actually flexibility built into the system to be able to manipulate things. And so I really enjoy that. I, I, like, I enjoy collaborating with faculty and sometimes they open my eyes and go, oh, I, I didn't think to do that that way. Let's see if we can mesh what you have with what I have and kind of make the perfect thing. And that's happened a couple times in, in the course development process. And it's, so it's, it's never awesome. boring. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> rarely boring, oh, <laughs> especially over the last year. It's been <laughs> rarely boring. So let's go back just a little bit back when you were in high school. Like, what did you love the most about teaching at the high school level? It would really be, you know, two things. First of all, first and foremost, the interactions with the students. I, I really, really enjoyed being the other part of the the nerd that I am, the history and the in the social studies nerd that I am, being able to connect with the students and have them, you know, in class and and get their really to be honest, get their take. Like at your age, what do you think about these sometimes very controversial topics? Mm-hmm. Um, and have that great back and forth, but also have an an opportunity for them to bounce it off each other, and you can you can almost literally see the growth. You can see the evolution of their thought process. It's really rare. Sometimes you even see it in a class period, but it's usually over the course of a school year. So, you know, those teachable moments is what we always refer to them that would pop up and you say, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to ignore what just happened. I can pause my content. Let's use this comment, this statement, this whatever just happened as a teachable moment. And it's not necessarily a father to son, mother to daughter type of lesson, mm-hmm. it, it might be a lesson just on society that pops up and why, you know, you, you may disagree with this, but here's probably why it's going on. And the light bulb moments, the aha, you can just see when oh, I got it hits their face. It, I do miss those. And that's what I really loved about teaching. Well, I would think that you would see a lot of that when with conversations about social studies because you're comparing now to then or what would you think if this was happening when you, you know, if you were that age mm-hmm. and things like that. And so they would have a lot of opinions about that or or uh, I can't even imagine nowadays being a social studies teacher and talking about the whole political uh, arena. There, there's got to be a lot of conversation going on <laughs> in those classes right now. <laughs> I would imagine so. I would, <laughs> yeah. I would definitely imagine so. There are some dry aspects, uh, you know, no offense to uh, economists, but teaching the law of diminishing returns is not the most <laughs> riveting concept for 16-year-olds. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but a lot of times you do get to have those, those great conversations, yeah. Yeah, I, I would think so. So we're going to take a little bit of a break from okay. these kinds of questions. The new segment that we have, and that is Get to the Point, 
I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you're just going to quickly give me an answer. It's, it's nothing that you had to study for. So, <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> you can't fail on this one, so it's okay. So here we go. Virtual or in person? In person. Pizza or wings? Wings. Social media of choice? Facebook. Dog or cat? Dog. Relaxation of choice? Sleeping. (laughs) Uh, Books or music? Music. Now this one is going to take you back to your, your high school days. Most significant war, World War II or the American Civil War, in your opinion? Only the only between those two. Yeah, or you could if you want to throw one of your own in, that's fine. What do you think is the most significant war? Uh, American Revolution. See, I thought I was going to get you on that one. Uh, choice <laughs> of beverage. Um, coffee. Now this is could be a tricky one. Ultimate frisbee or disc golf? Ultimate frisbee. <laughs> okay, you're the old-fashioned guy. <laughs> Phone call or email. Um, email. See, that was easy, wasn't yes. it? <laughs> yes. I, I feel like I feel like if there are any instructional designers that are listening, though, they'll be like, "Why did he say face to face in in a COVID world?" <laughs> That's all right. It's because it's just what comes to mind. That's all. <laughs> when looking at your background, it seemed like you were super active in high school when you were teaching in high school. One of those questions that I asked you about Ultimate Frisbee, I saw that you were the advisor for the Ultimate Frisbee Club in high school. So are you a Frisbee player? Uh, I was, yes. I, I, I haven't played in a few years. When I lived overseas is really where I got into it, and I was teaching overseas. So I'll I'll rewind with a quick timeline because we did jump from 2003 all the way to 2016. Yeah. When I was living in Virginia, and I was in Virginia from 03 to 06, I I was coaching wrestling. I was coaching football. I was an assistant coach for those programs. And I really wanted to go back to school and get my master's degree uh, in education. And so I started looking into programs, and there was a cohort with George Mason University. The problem was, at that time, we were entering that big housing boom as far as, you know, before the bubble burst. Yep. And in Northern Virginia, prices were skyrocketing and things like that. And I also had, a, I had three major goals, master's degree, get a house and do more traveling. Well, as the master's degree, as I looked into programs, I really needed my coaching stipends to be able to afford the programs. Problem was, is the programs met the exact same time I needed to be coaching. So I <sighs> couldn't make it work. So I started, okay, let's go to goal number two, house. Well, homes that I could have afforded maybe when I first moved there in 03, all of a sudden had almost tripled in price. Okay, can't afford that on a teacher's salary in in Virginia. Okay, option three, what about traveling? Um, I think I was 25 at the time, not married, no children. And uh, I started applying to, I applied to school systems in South Korea, in the Philippines, and in various parts of the world. Wow. And then I got uh, I got offered. Well, I interviewed and got offered a position teaching on Saipan, which is part of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Oh my gosh! Um, it's actually U.S. territory. I always say overseas because no one knows. In order to get there, you have to connect somewhere like Japan to get there, or maybe Hawaii. But that that's the expensive ticket. 
when I went over there, you know, we were only, it was a short flight to go somewhere like Guam or Indonesia or Bali or Thailand or Japan. I actually went to Japan once on vacation, spent some time That's in Tokyo. Cool. There's a long answer to get back to Ultimate Frisbee. I had, <laughs> I had played a little bit in high school. And while I was overseas teaching, I sort of stumbled into this Ultimate Frisbee club uh, of all adults playing Ultimate Frisbee. And we would play at the local high schools. And sometimes we would go play on the beach. You know, oh. gorgeous sunsets on the beaches of Saipan. Yeah. Uh, tropical island. Oh, my gosh. And over time... It had gotten, in a good way, competitive, and one of the, not me, but one of the guys sort of running the club said, hey, you guys want to, do you want to go play in an international tournament? And so he found a tournament in Bali, Indonesia, and we all booked our own individual flights, and we, we flew to Bali over, almost everybody was a teacher too, which was funny because almost everybody had the exact same break. And we played against teams from Hong Kong and Australia, uh, Bali, of course, wow. Thailand, uh, over about, I think it was about a three-day tournament. Oh, that is round really robin cool. Style when I came back to the mainland United States in 2008, just this fun and sort of to get some students who we were always hanging around after school, waiting for rides. They didn't have any interest and in some cases no money to join our sports teams mm -hmm. and, and, you know, pay for jerseys and things like that. Another teacher and I said, you know, let's, let's see if we can round up these kids and do something active with them. And so we had the Frisbee out there one day, just sort of throwing around. And then I said, well, you know, you guys want to play, you want to play. And, and they called it Frisbee football. It's same thing as ultimate Frisbee. Uh -huh. You guys want to play a game. So we set up some cones and it turned into a weekly thing. And the next semester, we started saying, well, you know, maybe we can actually put together some teams here just within the high school. And it grew. It grew from, a, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 kids after school for, you know, the first year or so to all of a sudden we had 30 or 40 kids out there every week. They weren't, I kind of felt bad for like the track team. They weren't joining the track team because they wanted to play <laughs> ultimate Frisbee. And we had our own inner squad scrimmages. And, and at some point I sort of stepped back a little bit and, and because I was pursuing another master's degree. And uh, the, it's funny, the, the gentleman who was my assistant coach, when I coached wrestling as the head coach, we flip-flopped. When I stepped down to go back to school, you know, he became the head and I was like, well, I'll be your assistant for a year. So we flipped roles. Same thing happened with ultimate Frisbee. I was sort of running and coordinating everything. He said, I'm going to back away. He said, well, I'll be the head. All right. I'll, I'll come out from time to time then. <sighs> and we always sort of flip flop roles, but um, that's how it really got into it. We, we oh. really wanted to do something for the students that at first had nothing to do. I love that story. So I didn't know. So were you a were you gone and did you get your degree there? Did it was were you there about a couple of years or how long were you there? I was there. It was a two year contract. Okay. Um, so I didn't come home for two years. Uh, oh. and it killed it killed my mother. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's literally on the other side of the world. It's uh, it's the South Pacific. It's fourteen hours, I believe, ahead. And while I was there, I luck had it. I stumbed into um, my master of ed degree. Master of International Ed. Wow. They actually, there was a program with the local school system. They had contracted with Framingham State University in Massachusetts. And faculty there 
I, I don't know what Framingham had them do to prepare for this, but um, they sent their faculty to us in Saipan. Oh. And we took courses, you know, over a two week time frame. We would take two courses at a time over two weeks, 10 hours a day, six days a week, intense. Oh take the courses and then and then they'd be gone and then we'd have about two months before that and it was always scheduled over our breaks our winter break our spring break things like that wow you know looking back are you are you glad that you took that opportunity because i mean a lot of people may not have they would think oh it's too far it's too long yeah and come up with all these reasons but now that you have done that would you recommend that for somebody else I guess here's what I would recommend. Here's how I came to that decision for myself. A long time ago, my grandfather had said to me, Eric, as long as you can look back on things and not have regret, then you've had a good Mm. life. And so when I was 25 and I was going down my own personal checklist, I thought to myself, and I'd been offered the job, I I could have stayed where I was and been very comfortable and kind of continued along. And I, uh, the only thing I thought to myself was, Eric, five or 10 years from now, are you going to look back and say, I wish I would have done that? Are you going to regret that you didn't go and take that chance and take that shot? Yeah. And the answer was yes. So I said, I got to go. Wow. And that that would probably be the advice I would give to someone is, I, I can't say go do it, but yeah. what I would say is ask yourself that question. Yeah. Would you regret it? And if the answer is yes, then then I think you know what your answer is. Well, it sounds like it do. was a beautiful place to go. So, so. yeah. And and as a history teacher, it's um, World War II history. A lot of it on that island. The the island right next door, six miles away across the channel, is where the Enola Gay took off from in World War II to <gasps> drop the A bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow! So, it, it, a huge player in the Pacific theater. Saipan actually was. It was and very strategic. You said that important. you did like go to Japan. Was it from there mm-hmm. you went to Japan? So were there a lot mm-hmm. of you could take little trips when you wanted to to, to do different things? Yep. Wow. Yep. We could we could take trips. I was lucky enough to go to Japan for about a total of a week uh-huh. over over time. Um I spent two weeks in Bali and about a week in Singapore. Oh wow. Uh, in in the time that I was over there. All very unique and very amazing places to visit on their own singapore might be one of my favorite cities that i've ever visited really yes um they are way they they were they probably still are way ahead of the curve when it comes to just internet infrastructure As as a city state i think that helps but um when i was there i was there in 2007 there was citywide wi-fi and all citizens just had access to Wi-Fi everywhere in the city. You, you plugged in essentially their version of a social security number, and you were tapped into it. And even even visitors, you could get a temporary access code. You pay what I don't recall what it was. Let's just say $10 per day. Yeah. I, I, I really don't recall what it was. But you could get a temporary access code for as long as you were there and be tapped into the Wi-Fi while you were in the city. Wow. Hmm. And a lot of other very neat things beyond that. But yeah. that's the one that really stands out. Yeah. That I always think, wow, America, who's going to be the first to adopt that? <laughs> well, wait a few more decades. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So I asked my guests to give three pieces of advice for anyone thinking about a career in your field. What would be three things that you wish you knew before taking the path you took? Was there anything that you would stand out? 
Um, first, I would say I wish I knew sooner about instructional design, sort of like you. It was never really on my radar. Yeah. I had wondered how how did people in high schools become instructional coordinators and all these positions that existed. And some of the people I knew, they sort of explained, they just fell into it. They, they didn't oh. necessarily have a degree. They didn't necessarily, they probably went for administrative and sort of this was the, well, I didn't get the assistant principal job. So this was the fallback. And that's how a lot of them fell into it. Okay. So I, I wish I knew about this sooner as a career path. The next I would say would be specifically about the job. I've, I never really had an opportunity to learn about the technical aspects of an LMS, uh, uh, something like Blackboard, the very behind the scenes things, the administrative parts. We had to do everything. When I helped with that blended learning initiative, we had to do everything free. We There was no budget for this. So I had to get very creative. Wow, yeah. And Schoology at the time offered that anyone could set up courses for free. You, you didn't need a school subscription or a teacher subscription or anything like that. You could have as many students as possible. Hmm. Uh, you know, and so found out about that and said, we need to use that. And we were already using Gmail as a school. So we're really going to leverage every G Suite thing that comes with Google for every education that we're paying for. So we, we had to get very creative. I have to give a, a special props to our tech our tech guru, Anthony Garzelic at Queens Grand High School, he went on every website he could find. He made four-hour trips down to Atlanta. He drove to, uh, I think, what is it? Um, uh, why can't I think of what it's called? There's a fort in Fayetteville, North Carolina, government, you know, Army Fort. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. Um, but, you know, he drove two, three hours away to get anything anybody was willing to give away, cheap or free. Wow. And he... He put together a lot of devices literally by hand. He'd take parts out of this computer and put them together in that other one. And so I would help him. I had no idea what I was doing. Oh, take this part. Sure, I can do that. Uh, and we, we pieced it together. So I, I wish I had known about the LMS stuff. And then the final part, I wish I knew in the industry outside of education, a lot of corporate training. They're looking for what they, they always – sort of refer to as a unicorn, someone who can do it all. Hmm. And there are pieces I still don't know. I don't know how to code. I don't know really anything about API calls. I, I have a very basic rudimentary knowledge that, of their existence. They're not requirements at Damon College for our department since IT is so involved and we're integrated with IT. But in a lot of other industries that use instructional designers, that's, that's part of the job is knowing those skills. And so I would say, you know, for people that are interested, sort of read up on that now. <laughs> okay. All right. Take a look because at that now. That's really the only way they can though, right? I mean, if someone was interested and wanted to dig in a little deeper, they just have to do their own personal research. I, like when you're going in for a master's in instructional design, there are probably multiple programs out there that mm -hmm. schools, universities are using. So is it common in the way you use them? So if you know how to use one, you can kind of figure out the others? Or do you have to relearn each one, do you think? I think if you've learned one, it will help you learn the others, but there's always going to be a relearning. Even if you've used Blackboard, we, we know we see this at Damon with faculty. We're going to make the permanent switch to Blackboard Ultra, you know, 
not not now, but I know but, that makes you know, me nervous. But yep. <laughs> but but so even though it's still the same system, there's going to be processes and things like that to relearn. Yes, I do there think is. <laughs> I do think diving in and sort of getting your hands dirty helps, mm-hmm. and really investing the time to play. So to truly just play, hey, I'm going to try creating this asset. Oh, it it worked or it didn't work. And really using that experiential learning will help people dive in. It certainly helped me. Yeah. When uh, when I joined Damon, Peter Schilke, you know, the the director of, of the Office of Instructional Design, he gave me really, it was probably more than a week, but I feel like it was, it was about a week, maybe a little more to just, he didn't really give me any chores. He said, dive in, huh. just play. And that was actually part of the onboarding process. Take some time and really immerse yourself in this system. Wow. Um, you know, just if you, if you, if, uh, if something pops up that says, are you sure you want to delete? Maybe check out with me first. <laughs> Don't hit the button too fast. <laughs> right. Take your time. Really know what you're looking at. Yeah, um, we've all done that. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for spending time with us today and talking about your career path. I mean, I, I love the stories and we had an extra special story on there about your traveling because I, I like to hear where people have been and, and especially how that is incorporated in careers because I think some people, maybe that, you know, they get scared or, you know, if I do that, how do I get back in or, you know, I'm going to be so far away from my family and friends. Is that going to be a good idea? But to hear people that do it and have success and have really enjoyed it and look back and think that, you know, that really was a smart move. It, it encourages other people to just, you know, think outside the box a little bit because there's so many opportunities. Absolutely. And, you know, I have to give credit to a lot of people in my life. For me, just the open mind, think flexibly, think creatively. Your, you know, I, your skills don't have to go to waste. I didn't want all the stuff I had learned as a teacher and as an educator to go to waste. I still want to use those skills. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky to be able to find another, another job still related to those skills. Right. And, and I can, you certainly have a passion for teaching. And I think that, you know, at some point, I think you need to start a, a Frisbee club at Damon. So I'm just putting it out there and we'll, we'll see what happens <laughs> when we get the new lawn look, out there. <laughs> that's right. When when the new lawn will be the first to tear it up. <laughs> <laughs> there, you, there you go. Well, thank you again for, for sharing your story. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Sharp HR Career Corner. If you're having trouble finding out what you want to do in your career and you could use some assistance, reach out to Sharp Human resources. We would love to help you figure it all out. Um, If you enjoy listening to our podcast, I encourage you to download the podcast, leave a comment and share with others you know. The more downloads, comments and likes our podcast receives, the better ratings we will get and the easier we can be found. So thank you in advance for that. Until next time, be kind everyone. We need to show a lot more kindness in the world and it starts with you and I. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.